2 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, like most professions, when a pastor looks for a change of scenery, he sends out a resume. Churches read them, and then they invite candidates to come and interview for the job. But a prospective pastor needs to be careful what he puts down on his resume. Recently, I ran across a list of statements pastors should not include on their resume. Here we go. Number eight, in the five churches I faithfully served over the last two years. Not good. Number seven, my extensive counseling of church members is a rich source of illustrations for my sermons. (laughs) Not good. Number six, I've been told every sermon I preach is better than the next. Number five, my personality type has provided me ample opportunity to develop a wide range of conflict resolution skills. Number four, with a suspended driver's license, a car allowance won't be necessary. (laughs) Number three, hobbies, pit bulls and automatic weapons. Not what you want from a pastor. Number one, and this is definitely an anathema, a no-no, I require Sundays off. And then the number one thing that a pastor shouldn't put on his resume, I've learned to cope with financial crisis at every church I've served. Not good. Well, I mentioned pastoral resumes because there were critics at the church in Corinth who were questioning the Apostle Paul's resume, or lack of one. His detractors had cast doubt on his credentials. And so Paul opens chapter 3 reluctantly defending himself. He begins, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You see, a common practice in the early days of Christianity was for traveling preachers to carry with them letters of commendation or referrals from their home church. You know, even today when requests come from folks who either want to come and speak or sing at Calvary Chapel, their information packet will include these letters of reference from other churches where they've ministered. It's standard protocol. It's really a good way to validate the legitimacy of someone's ministry. But Paul didn't bring such letters to the Corinthians. He didn't need to. Think about it. When he came to Corinth there, there was no church It was through the ministry of Paul that the people had gotten saved and the church had been planted. You would have thought that the existence of the Corinthian church itself would have validated Paul's ministry. I mean, it'd be like Pastor Chuck coming to our church and not being allowed to preach because he didn't bring with him the proper credentials. I mean, Chuck founded the first Calvary Chapel and has inspired the other 1,500 Calvary Chapels all around the world. Those churches are a validation of his ministry. In essence, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I started your church. Through my preaching, God saved your soul, and now you want to see my ID? You see, the Corinthians wanted to see Paul's resume, but Paul says that they are his resume. He says, you are our epistle, 
written in our hearts, known and read by all men. All the false teachers who came to Corinth after Paul had departed, they came with this impressive paperwork. But Paul insists that the Corinthians themselves were his paperwork. Notice verse 3. He says, clearly, you're an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Paul was the pen that God used to write on the hearts of the Corinthians. But the author of the transformation was Christ himself. That's why Paul calls the Corinthians an epistle or a letter of Christ. You know, today we send text messages and emails, but when Paul wanted to communicate, he picked up a quill pen and parchment. He inked his letters. The problem, though, is that ink can smear. It can smudge. It can fade with time. Even when the ink is legible, the words can get lost or ignored or misinterpreted. This is what happened with the Old Covenant. God wrote his will on stone tablets. Remember when Charlton Heston came off the mountain? I mean, Moses came off the mountain. He came with those two stone tablets. This was before ink, the Ten Commandments. God gave Moses. He chiseled into the stone with his very finger. But the same problem exists. You see, there was nothing wrong with God's law. The problem was not what was written, but it was how it was written. Eventually, God's law did get misunderstood. At other times, the Jews ignored the two tablets of the law. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the commandments in his hands, in essence, God was saying, take these two tablets daily and you'll get better. And they would have had they taken them, but the Jews neglected their medicine. Think of a very modern illustration. You need directions. So someone hands you a piece of paper. And yet, just having those handwritten directions doesn't mean you're going to arrive, does it? I mean, you can lose the paper, or you can misread it, or you can spill a drink on it, or you can smear the ink in some way, or you can roll down the window and it fly out the car. But what if I installed a GPS in the dash that would always give you updated directions? that GPS would prove much more efficient than just a piece of paper. And this is why God has written His will into our hearts. This is the new covenant. It's tough lugging around stone tablets, but God has etched His will into our basic desires and our instincts. He installs a spiritual GPS inside us. He gives us a new nature, that keeps directing and calibrating us back into His will. This is the miracle of the new covenant. And Paul holds it up in contrast to the old. With the new covenant, God has gone high tech. He's discarded stone tablets. And He's planted a spiritual chip deep into our spirit. So rather than fumble around with a piece of paper and try to follow God from the outside in, God has put His Spirit within us. Rather than conform to an external standard, God has transformed us from the inside out. This is the new covenant. Notice verse 4. He says, And we have such trust 
through Christ toward God. You see, it takes zero faith to follow a set of directions. It's just there in black and white. In fact, you can follow a set of directions begrudgingly or mechanically. The right attitude has very little to do with obeying orders. And this was the problem with the Old Covenant. People kept the law, but for all the wrong reasons. They became self-righteous and stuck up and judgmental. They were holy on the outside, but their attitude stunk on the inside. This was why the New Covenant was a better covenant. It wasn't just about actions. It was about attitude. God gave you a new heart. You loved, not judged. You became humble, not proud. You trusted instead of becoming self-sufficient. Paul says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. You see, not everyone is good at reading a map and following the directions. In fact, the worst person on the planet at following directions, yours truly, the very worst person. Here's the adage in our house. If you want to get to heaven, ask Sandy. But if you need to get anywhere else, you better ask Kathy. I got to hand it to her. She's got a knack for directions. I got a knack for getting twisted around and lost. In fact, I got to admit this, guys. I've observed that most women are better at directions than most men. It's been said the reason the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years is that Moses was too proud to stop and ask for directions. But success under the new covenant for men and women alike has nothing to do with our ability to follow the directions. Paul says our sufficiency is from God. You see, rather than hand us a set of directions for us to follow, God has planted a homing device in our hearts. He writes his will and his way into our hearts. Our job is just to trust in him. He does the work. Our sufficiency is from God, Paul says. And it's God, he says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of this new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. See, a believer's ability to live out the new covenant comes from God as well as our ability to pass it on. The Holy Spirit comes to minister in us, to transform us from the inside out, but He also works through us so that we can pass on the good news we've received. Paul adds in verse 6, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, under the old covenant, the people had received a task. They were told to obey, but they lacked the power to obey. You know, when you give someone a task without the strength or skill or abilities or tools to do that task, you sentence them to despair and discouragement and death. This is what the letter of the law did. The law written on stone tablets was impossible for God's people to keep. Not because there was anything wrong with the law. The problem was with the people trying to keep the law. They were unable. This year, the Chicago Bulls, they have the best record in the NBA. But not too long ago, they had the worst. In the 1960s, no one was bullish on the Bulls. 
In fact, their tallest player, Erwin Mueller, was just six foot eight. Once before a game with the Celtics in the midst of a seven-game losing streak, Coach Johnny Kerr, he stood in the locker room and he tried to fire up his team. He said to forward Bob Boozer, he said, Bob, go out there and pretend that you're the best scorer in basketball. Then he turned to guard Jerry Sloan. Jerry, get out there and pretend you're the best defender that the game of basketball has ever seen. Then the coach turned to Mueller. He said, Irwin, pretend you're the best rebounder and blocker, shot blocker and dominating center in the, in the game of basketball. Well, the team was so fired up, they stormed onto the court. But when the game was over, the Bulls had lost again, this time by 17 points. Coach Kerr was so depressed. He didn't really know what to say. Finally, Mueller piped up and said, don't worry, coach, just pretend we won. Well, you see, that's what happens when you live under the law. You're trying to win a game that you simply don't have the ability to win. You're not good enough to match up to God's righteousness. You don't have the skill. And if you're too proud to admit it, you end up just pretending. You play the hypocrite. You become self-righteous. And that's why Paul says the letter, it kills. But the Spirit... It gives life. The life of the Spirit is what gives life. Verse 7 recalls the initial giving of this old covenant to Moses. It says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Exodus 34 describes the face of Moses after he came down the mountain with the law in his hand. We're told that his countenance was actually flush with the glory of God. Call it the divine shine. His face radiated. Call it the glow. He looked as if he'd gotten too much radiation. He looked like he'd been in a tanning bed all day. His face just beamed. And God required Moses to cover his face with a veil. Why? Because his glory was off limits to the rank-and-file Hebrew. Of course, the glow faded over time. Like the glory of the Old Covenant, it too waned. The Mosaic Law was transitory. The law of Moses was unable to make us righteous. In fact, its chief purpose was to expose our unrighteousness. Thus, it gave way to a new covenant. The grace of God and the work of the Spirit make for a far more glorious covenant. The divine shine passed away, but the glory of God's grace under the new covenant lasts forever. Paul says in verse 10, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. In other words, compared to the glory of the gospel, the glory of this new covenant, the glory of the law, now looks dull and lackluster and second fiddle. He says, for if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. The prominence and the splendor of the old covenant was a fleeting one. I mean, you could literally watch it fade from Moses' face. 
But the preeminence and the significance of the new covenant lasts forever. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. You see, under the old covenant, the Hebrews were not worthy to behold the glory of God. This was why Moses was commanded by God to hide the glory behind a veil. And this veil became a symbol for the blindness that existed in the hearts of the Jews. They read the law. They understood its demands, but they were unable to obey. The law produced guilt and fear rather than righteousness and confidence. It was a source of frustration rather than a source of freedom and fulfillment. Notice verse 14 explains it. He says, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And when you read verse 16, your heart should skip a beat. That's exciting. The relentless drone of the law's demands. Do this. Don't do that. Do, don't, do, don't. It creates a hopelessness within us. Who can live up to such a demand? God seems a million miles away. You'll sooner travel to the nearest star than get to God through the law. I mean, we want to see God. We want to draw close to God. But then we butt noses with that veil. We can't see His glory. Yet when anyone, Paul says, anyone, mind you, turns to Jesus Christ, when we turn to Jesus and confess our sin and stop pretending to be something that we're not, suddenly that veil between you and God gets taken away. Instantly, we're invaded by a sense of God's presence, God's pleasure. God comes into focus. His glory fills our emptiness. The distance that we used to feel evaporates. The veil is removed. This is what happens through Christ and the new covenant. Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Notice the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. Now the Lord is the Spirit. There's only one God. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of the Lord. He reflects and represents Jesus. This also means that the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is really just a continuation of the work of Christ on the cross. Both are experienced by grace through faith. Yet here's what happens in Christian circles. We believe that we're saved by grace through faith. But then we try to live the Christian life through our own strength. Rather than trust more, we end up trying more. It becomes grit, not grace. And in the end, we're right back under the veil. Our faith gets buried under a mound of guilt. Rather than liberty, we become overwhelmed with condemnation. We have a new covenant, but so often we live as if we're under the old. Author and speaker Warren Wearsby traveled extensively among churches all across North America. And Wearsby writes this about what he's observed. He says, There are gospel-preaching churches that have legalistic tendencies 
and keep their members immature, guilty, and afraid. They spend a great deal of time dealing with the externals. They exalt standards and denounce sin, but they fail to magnify the Lord Jesus. Sad to say, in some New Testament churches, we have an Old Testament ministry. Here's a real tragedy. New Testament churches with Old Testament ministries. There are churches that emphasize the rules and the rituals, whereas New Covenant Christianity is all about faith and freedom and fruitfulness. As Paul puts it, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Under the New Covenant, people no longer dwell on their own deficiencies. They're free from failure. They're covered by the blood of Jesus. Now they can fix themselves on the sufficiency that's ours in Christ. And verse 18 is so crucial. He says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, here's what happens to a believing heart under the new covenant. God strips away that veil. It's like walking into the dar- a dark room, a-, a room that's kind of been blacked out. It's like walking into that room in the middle of the day and then suddenly ripping open the blinds. Suddenly light streams into that room. This is what happens to us when we put our faith in Christ. And it happens not because we've tried hard, or because we've earned the right, or because we've proved our worth. It happens in response to our simple faith, the simple faith that God pours into our hearts, His peace and His presence. And His glory transforms us. It makes us like Jesus. You know, the Greek word here translated transformed. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's the word metamorphosis. You've heard that word. It speaks of a radical change. When a rock crystallizes or when a caterpillar leaves its cocoon and flies off as a butterfly, it's a metamorphosis. Under the old covenant, you conform. You conform to the law and you produce your own righteousness. But under the new covenant, we're transformed. He works in our hearts and we reflect His righteousness. We become like Jesus. Paul said that the glory of the old covenant faded and diminished. But notice the glory of the new covenant intensifies. We go from glory to glory to glory. The Christian life is a progression, a progression of glory. Here's how the glory grows. Here's how the glow grows. We behold as in a mirror. You just keep spending time with Jesus. You keep looking at Jesus You keep the focus and the attention of your heart Godward. Did you know that's all that you need to do to grow as a Christian? Is to keep focused on Jesus. In the New Covenant Christianity, a metaphysical miracle occurs in the heart of a believer. We change, not because of our efforts, but because of God's Spirit working in our heart. First our heart changes, then our thoughts and our attitudes follow step. Ultimately, our actions are affected. And it's amazing. We change without really trying to change. It just happens. You just keep your face open toward Jesus. He affects the changes. It's the Spirit of God who does all the work. 
All we supply is the look. He says, with open face, with unveiled face. That's your job, is to maintain an unveiled, an open face, to keep your focus on Jesus. And oh, the power of a look. When you look to Jesus with an unveiled faith, when you look, you'll never be the same. Chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Note, the majesty of the gospel affects the ministry of the gospel. How can you get discouraged? How can you contemplate quitting when you've got such glorious news to share? The new covenant provides new energy. He writes of a new covenant ministry. He says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. One time in my married life, I bought a newer model car. I'm notorious for driving the beaters. But one time, I wanted Kathy to be driving something nice. She had all these kids with her and So I wanted to put her in a nice vehicle. So I went down, and we were going to buy a new car. Well, we bought a sort of new car, but it was close. We purchased this van, a Toyota van. And and buying cars is not an experience that I enjoy. I mean, usually when you go buy a car, you feel pressured. You don't know if you're being lied to. You feel manipulated. You feel strong-armed. In the end, you get suckered to some degree or another. And I don't like any of the above. So after several of the traditional dealerships, we went to a car lot that advertised, you know, you don't have to dicker here. It's just one price. So we walk in, we look at the cars. In fact, I'm the one that started trying to dicker. And the guy finally, he looked at me, and the salesman told me, he said, man, no pressure. He said, this is a good car at a good price, and if you don't buy it, somebody else will. I'd never heard a car salesman say that before. I like the approach so much, guess what? We bought the Toyota van. In essence, though, this was Paul's approach to the gospel. He didn't use these shameful, pressured tactics in his preaching. He didn't rely on craftiness and manipulation and deceit. Paul had confidence in the product. I mean, God gives us the riches of Christ freely by faith. (laughs) Paul just presented the truth. This is why you don't preach the gospel the way you pitch used cars. You don't have to stretch or twist the appeal. You don't have to bully anybody into obeying. The gospel is such a good idea, it'll sell itself if you just present it as clearly and as plainly as possible. I love verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. In other words, the gospel is such a good idea, the only reason people reject it is that they've been blinded by Satan. You know, mention Jesus to someone, and if they refuse to hear you, I mean, no matter how nice you are when you approach them, if they still refuse to hear you, you know that a spiritual deception has occurred. 
Chalk it up to the God of this age or Satan. Satan is the one who blinds men to God's truth. This is why before we preach, we need to pray. It's like the waitress who was in the foul mood. Her customer was just trying to be polite. When she brought him his coffee, he said, Looks like rain today, doesn't it? The lady snapped back at him and said, I can't help what it looks like. We sell it as coffee, so just shut up and drink it. The point is, despite how nice you are to someone, some people are just on edge. They're just going to take the opposing point of view. And when it comes to the gospel, when they do that, you know it's because of Satan. He's blinded their eyes. You know, I've heard it said, there's a lot you can do after you've prayed, but there's nothing you can do effectively until you've prayed. When will we realize prayer is the heavy artillery? Through prayer, we beat down the strongholds. Recall the parable Jesus told? We take the spoils, but it's only after we bind up the strong man in prayer. Then we slip in and we take the spoils. This should be the pattern of our witnessing. We pray before we preach. And then I love verse 5. It's so important. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants, or literally your slaves for Jesus' sake. Christian ministry should be void of any self-advertisement. I mean, terms like promotional tours, image consultants, fan clubs, have no place in the Christian vocabulary. We're bondservants for Jesus' sake. Can you imagine a slave with a fan club? You can't promote yourself and magnify Jesus simultaneously. The spotlight only shines on one person at a time. And if it's on you, that means that Jesus is in the dark. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we break Out the darkness, how do we break through the darkness? Not by talking about ourselves, not by promoting ourselves, but by shining God's light. It's the knowledge of Jesus that drives out the darkness. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, I love this. He talks about treasure being placed in earthen vessels. At first glance, this is such a strange idiom. Who puts a treasure in clay pots? Earthen vessels. I mean, it's like serving steak and lobster on a paper plate. It's like somebody serving you an expensive wine in a styrofoam cup. I mean, you expect to find jewels and gold and treasure in an elaborate treasure chest, not in a paper sack. This is how God wraps up his treasure. He's taken the most valuable treasure on the earth, the gospel, and he's placed it in clay pots. That's what we are, by the way. We're made from the dust of the ground. We're nothing but clay. We're coarse and uncouth and rough-edged pottery. If you want to know the truth, we're all a bunch of cracked pots. Imagine, God places the gospel in ball jars. But why? 
And Paul explains, it's marvelous. He says that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. Why does God use crackpots like you and me? It's to hammer home the point that the power and the beauty and the wisdom of the message is not in the messenger. You know, D.L. Moody, he, he was the Billy Graham of his day. A man used by God in mighty and marvelous ways. And yet, history tells us that Moody was uneducated. His voice was this high-pitched, little squealy voice. It sounded kind of nasally. He had an unattractive appearance. Once a reporter was sent out to analyze Moody's success, and he wrote in his paper, he says, I can see nothing whatsoever in Moody to account for his marvelous work. And this is exactly the reason God puts his spiritual treasure in brown paper sacks. So everyone will know that the powers of God and not of us. God's going to do great things through this little bitty church over here in Winder. And when it's all said and done, everybody will look back and say, that must have been God. Certainly wasn't those guys. That's okay. Now, this is why Christian ministry should always be conducted in humility and in simplicity. No glitzy fanfare, no ostentatious displays, no verbose introductions. I'm not saying we shouldn't communicate in an appealing manner. We should, but the difference is in our motive. See, there's a difference in trying to express yourself and wanting to impress others. The question to ask is always this. Are we trying to get the message heard or are we wanting to get the messenger seen? You know, whenever a liquid flows from a glass, I want to make sure that the taste left in the mouths of those who drink it is that of the contents, not of the container. I have a cup in my office. It was a gift from Jess when she was still dating Zach. I have a cup in my office, and it is solely devoted to coffee. But on occasion, I'll pour a Coca-Cola into that cup. And you know what I get? I get coffee-flavored Coca-Cola. That's what I get. The contents gets contaminated by the container. The drink gets tainted by the container. This is why when we share the gospel, what kind of taste do we want people to be left with? Have they received the pure, clear, untainted truth? Or are they thinking about me or about us, about how spiritual we are, how cool we are? Have we preached Jesus or have we promoted ourselves? And we need to give them Jesus and then get out of the way. That's what Paul's telling us. And then notice verse 8. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Here's a taste of Paul's ministry for you. Everywhere he went, he got beat up, but he never gave up. Oh, he was crushed, but not perplexed. He was struck down, but never destroyed. He got beat up, but he never gave up. The message of the gospel is what motivated Paul. Mark Twain once boarded a train for Sioux City. He didn't want to carry his briefcase on board, so he asked a clerk if he thought the case was strong enough to handle the rigorous treatment that the baggage handlers would give it. The porter, he took Twain's case and he threw it down on the pavement. 
He says, this, sir, is what it'll get in Philadelphia. And then he slammed the briefcase a half dozen times against the side of the car. And that's what she'll get in Chicago. Finally, he hurled the case up against the wall and he stomped on it vigorously until the paper spilled out. That's what she'll get if she ever makes it to Sioux City. I mean, Twain couldn't believe what he was witnessing. Finally, the clerk handed Twain his mangled briefcase and then she said, he said calmly, he said, if you're going any further than Sioux City, I suggest you carry it on yourself. Well, Paul was like that briefcase. He traveled a lot further than Sioux City and he received rougher treatment than that briefcase. And yet it was the majesty of the message that motivated the messenger. And Paul saw God at work in his difficulties. He says in verse 10, that he's always carrying about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul's body was probably more mangled than Mark Twain's briefcase. He was literally one of the walking wounded. But the cracks in his vessel became opportunities for the life and light of Jesus on the inside to shine through. Dr. Rachel Riemann tells the story of a patient that she treated for severe depression. He had lost a leg to cancer. And she had him draw a picture of how he felt about himself. Well, he drew this ugly, cracked, worthless vase. But a transformation occurred in this young man as he began to deal with his disappointments. His hope began to come back. He soon discovered that he could be an encouragement to other cancer patients. His life took on a whole new meaning. One day, the doctor showed him his previous drawing. The young man, he took out a yellow crayon, and he started drawing several vivid, colorful streamers flowing out of the cracks in that vase. And he explained, where it's broken, this is now where the light comes through. Where it's broken, this is now where the light comes through. And Paul, in essence, is making the same statement. It's through his dying. It's through his hurts and his wounds and his cracks. This is now where the light shines through. This is where the life of God comes through. Paul is no longer discouraged by his difficulties. He now sees them as opportunities to reveal the light and life of Christ. Verse 13, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke. Here he quotes Psalm 116, verse 10. He says, we also believe and therefore speak. And I, and I like this train of thought. Notice, faith doesn't stay silent. It declares itself. It's born in the heart, but it eventually bubbles to the surface and it, and it finds an expression. And here's what Paul's faith declares. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul had given his body to God, his life to God, as a living sacrifice. He wasn't worried about its present welfare. He knew that one day his body would be resurrected, immortal, incorruptible, invincible. Death could take nothing from Paul that really mattered. 
He says, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Paul now considered his sufferings worth it, knowing that God was being glorified. And then he says in verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Notice the chapter ends as it began. The gospel's majesty motivated Paul's ministry. Hey, when you carry glorious news, you carry on despite painful consequences and circumstances. Paul never gave up or gave in or gave out. No matter how banged up he got, he refused to lose heart. One day the devil had a garage sale. All his tools were laid out in the front yard. They were all out there for public inspection. And each tool was marked with a price. On display that day, Satan had a treacherous lot of diabolical instruments, things like hatred and envy and deceit and greed and lust and pride. But over in the corner, there was this harmless, innocent-looking tool. It was well-worn, but it was extremely high-priced. Someone asked him, he said, what's the name of that tool? And Satan replied, that's the tool of discouragement. It's priced so high because I can use it to pry open men's hearts and invade them even when I can't get close to them with the other tools. It's badly worn because I use it on almost everyone, especially since few people know it belongs to me. It's my favorite tool. Hey, Satan will discourage you if you let him. You'll find a thousand reasons for you to get discouraged if you let him. He sets us up for disappointment and discouragement when he gets us focused on three areas in our life. When we get focused on the physical and the fleshly, or when we get focused on the here and now, or when we get focused on what we can see, the visible and the tangible, this becomes our downfall. Notice first, Paul tells us, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now, here's a potential source of great discouragement for us all. You're getting older. Yep, that can get discouraging. Growing older is inevitable, but it is discouraging. Everybody gets older. Did you know that all supermodels end up wrinkled? They do. They do. Gravity takes its toll. Every muscle a bodybuilder develops will wither in the grave. The outward man is perishing, Paul says. But while the outward man perishes, while the outward man deteriorates, the Spirit of God invigorates the inward man. I'm wearing down physically, no way around it, but I can get stronger and stronger spiritually. Thus, the key to overcoming discouragement is to stay focused on the inward man, not the outer man. God keeps us alive and renewed spiritually. Now, there's another way to beat the blahs. Focus on your eternal rewards, not your temporal troubles. Everybody has both. Paul tells in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's amazing. 
Paul had endured shipwrecks and stonings and imprisonments and beatings, incredible hardships. But notice he calls them here our light affliction. How can that be? His list doesn't seem light to me. That is until it's compared with heaven's heaviness, heaven's glory. See, heaven's highs make today's burdens seem light as a feather. Heaven is, notice this, catch this. If you hear nothing else tonight, listen to this. Heaven is so heavy, your first nanosecond in heaven will more than make up for a lifetime of tears and pain here on earth. Paul says our light affliction is just for a moment. Compared to eternity, life on earth is just a split second. I mean, a million zillion years from now, all the tears you've shed in this world will have long been forgotten. I love verse 17. In it, God has promised us not just glory, but notice, a weight of glory. And not just a weight of glory, but an eternal weight of glory. And not just an eternal weight of glory, but an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But there's more. It's not just an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And not just a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How's that for a bright future? We need to keep our eyes on heaven, friends. It will be for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. Finally, we need to look beyond the visible and the tangible to the spiritual realities of life. Paul says in verse 18, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. You know, in fact, it's the spiritual stuff. It's the spiritual realities that matter most. Love, grace, mercy and peace and integrity, fellowship. The older you get, the more you realize this. It's the spiritual things that count most. You can have all the toys in the world. But if you don't have peace in your heart, if you don't have love in your life, if you don't have fellowship, you're a poor man, a poor woman. He says, for the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. Hey, focus on what you can see. And you'll lose heart every time. But focus on the iceberg just below the surface, the realities in your life that you can't see, God's realities, and faith will grow. You recall when Elisha's servant heard that the king had dispatched men to take the prophet captive? He got frightened. He got scared. But not Elisha. Because the prophet had eyes of faith. He saw more than his servant saw. Understand, faith always sees more. People talk about blind faith. Faith is never blind. Faith sees more than the person who lacks it. In 1 Kings 6, verse 17, Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servants. He was worried about these troops camped outside the house. And in that same verse, we're told, Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
God had dispatched some troops of his own. The angelic secret service was on duty to protect God's man, Elisha. The servant thought they were outnumbered. God showed him that, no, the enemy was outnumbered. This is why we need to look on those things that are eternal, not those things that are temporal. Well, here's the lessons we learn here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We won't get discouraged if we keep our minds from focusing on the deterioration of the outward man and let God renew us, the person of the heart, day by day. We won't get discouraged if we seek eternal rewards, not temporal success. And we won't get discouraged if we gravitate toward what is spiritual, not what's visible. A Christian's priority should be inward, not outward. It should be eternal, not temporal. It should be spiritual, not tangible. Paul says, take heart, don't lose heart. And there we have 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4.